We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us the last couple months, we, we've been walking through it or a month or so. And, um, you know, what we do here at Fellowship is we'll pick a book of the Bible. In this case, it's a section of the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters from the book of Matthew. And we'll just walk through it verse by verse. And, and this is what we teach on. So today's message is the next verse, the next two verses, actually, that we're going to be looking at this morning. And as we've been learning and, and, and experiencing through this sermon The Sermon on the Mount is not about Jesus giving moral commands. It's more about him introducing a whole new way of human life, like a whole new range of possibilities for what it looks like to be fully and gloriously human. And the thing about Jesus is he didn't just teach it, he lived it. And he invited this 12 men and the other women that were with him that followed him around into this way of life. They were called disciples. They were called followers. And now, 2,000 years later, he is inviting us, men and women who love him, to follow him into this glorious way of living, this wholehearted life in Jesus. And we're in a particular section on the Sermon on the Mount that that was sort of um, kicked off. The the key verse of this section is chapter 5, verse 20. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already to that verse, chapter 5, verse 20. It's not in our text today, but it's important that we remind ourselves the context. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody swallowed hard, you know. Well, how in the world are we supposed to be more righteous than the experts of righteousness? You know, is this a setup? Is this a trick? Is this a trap? What's going on here? And then the rest of chapter five, which is the section that we're in now, Jesus explaining how this is possible. Jesus is explaining what he meant by it. And the way he does that is to take six Old Testament commands and talk about the letter of the law versus the heart of the law or the spirit of the law. And so we're going to be doing that this morning with uh, divorce. So another light topic this morning. But let me remind us of this image that we've been going to in this section of the sermon, the iceberg, because it really matters for you to have this idea in your head. You know, as we talked about the last few weeks, an iceberg is really only 10% visible what's above the water. 90% of an iceberg is down below. And, you know, most of us know this. You've heard this before. And so what Jesus is doing when he's been walking through these six commands of the Old Testament is he's saying, you know, the 10% that's above the law, that's really about your behavior. You know, the, the law governs your behavior. Any kind of law does that, by the way. Don't speed, you know, don't do this, don't do that. God's law in a similar way governs your behavior. But the 90% that's below the surface of the water is really about the intent of your heart, the motive of your heart. Now, this is where Jesus is introducing a new way to be human. I don't tend to think about laws with the motive of my heart. The police officer that's tracking my speed doesn't care what my motive is. He only cares about what my actions are. God cares about what's under the waterline as well. That's the context, the iceberg, what's above the line, below the line, the behavior, the letter of the law, or the intent, the spirit of the law, the heart. And so that's the context we come to these two verses on divorce. Two verses, but there's nothing small about them. I'm going to ask you to stand together, and I know you're all comfortable, and this is the part of the service you want to just sit back and listen, but it matters for us to stand. We're going to stand and read together, and here's why we're asking you to stand. These are the words of Jesus, and we come under his authority as a body, and so we read these words together as a body this morning. So I'll read, I invite you to read out loud with me as we walk through these two verses. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the living word of God for us today. Father, would you help us know what it means to follow Jesus through these very words this morning? Amen. You can have a seat. I was not planning on being with you this morning. Several weeks back, uh, as Lloyd and I looked ahead to this text, um, we turned to the person on our staff that has the most experience and expertise and background and passion for marriage. And that's Larry Kayser, who's our, our pastor of marriage ministry and one of our elders. And Larry's a great teacher as well. And it was our plan for Larry to be here this morning teaching through this text. And about a week ago, Larry started not feeling well. And it's not what you think. It's not COVID-related. But there are some other symptoms they're exploring. It could be heart-related or some other things. And he, he's had a couple of episodes of this last week. He's doing fine. He's doing well. He's, he's at home awaiting some further tests. But be in prayer for Larry, that they would be able to figure out what it is that's going on in his heart or whatever it is that's causing these episodes of fatigue and other things. So about midway through this past week, Larry and I decided... Let, let, let's, let's make a different plan. So I am here, and, and I'll tell you what, I was not hoping to teach this text. <laughs> Can I just be honest with you? And yet, as I worked in it and sat in it, God started moving in me. And so I'm actually excited. I'm, I'm excited to teach it because there's a lot here. And I think there's, there's a new way of hearing this text that I think will give some life and hope for many of us in the room this morning. Now, I want to do something, though, is I want to read to you the introduction that Larry had written for his message. And he hadn't completed his message, but he got far enough along to write an introduction. And he sent it to me, and I was so touched by it. I think this captures the heart of what Larry and I and, and Lloyd would all want for this message this morning, because we all three huddled about it weeks ago when we were trying to understand what God is saying through this text as Larry was preparing to teach it. And so this is Larry's introduction that I want to read to you to get us started this morning. The single most photographed, planned for, anticipated, celebrated, and expensive day in most people's lives is the day they get married. People get on airplanes, drive long distances, take time off work, buy new clothes. It's a really big day. Many couples come into that day with more preparation and expectation than any other day of their life. Hope overflows. It's all centered around a single promise. I will love you, treasure you, be faithful to you through sickness and health, through poverty and plenty, as long as we both shall live. But when marriages die, and they do, there are no pictures, no gowns, no invitations, no gifts, no parties. The death isn't usually a quick one, though most people wish it would be. It usually just bleeds to death from a thousand little cuts and wounds. No one calls 911 or does CPR. It's just that hearts that were once warm and thoughtful over time get tough and hard and everyone feels the pain. The death of a marriage is one of the saddest, most painful things I can think of. For some of you, this is very personal and even painful. Even mentioning it makes you cringe and feel anxious inside and you're wondering, what is my church going to say about this? That's a good question because sometimes churches have made a bad situation worse. This morning I have some hopes and prayers for us as we study this text. My first prayer is that everyone will understand clearly what Jesus says about divorce 
and that he's not being harsh or judgmental, just wise. My second prayer is that those of you who have been through this experience will find grace and hope, two gifts that are central to the gospel. My third prayer is that some of you who are right now struggling in your marriage may be ready to give up, would hang on, would get help, would stay the course. That others of you would put up guardrails around the God-inspired promise you made to one another. Those are my prayers for all of us today. Those are my prayers for all of us today as well. I'm very aware this morning, for those of you in the room and those of you that are watching online, We've got men and women who are divorced and now single, divorced and now remarried, married and struggling, married and flourishing, single and never married. We have those who are feeling shame about their marriage or about their divorce. We have those that are feeling pride about their marriage. We have those who are feeling apathetic about marriage in general. And you might be wishing right now you'd skipped this morning. We're all together right here in this room and online. And I wanna go ahead and share that this message is inadequate to answer all the questions that you're going to have and all the specific circumstances and hardships that you've experienced. But here's what we have before us in these 30 minutes, an opportunity to hear the Spirit of God speak through the Word of God, speak through the words of Jesus. And I want you to think about how profound it is that we have the words of Jesus. Because you can hear someone's heart through their words. And so who was Jesus when you think about it? He was the word made flesh and he was love made flesh. That's who Jesus was. He was truth and he was compassion. Another way to say it, when love came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he told the truth without compromise. And at the very same time, he moved with grace and compassion to everyone who was hurting and broken and sinful. He didn't relax even the smallest commandment of God's law. And yet everyone who cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner, received far more grace, far more mercy from Jesus Christ than they ever could have imagined. He moved toward the hurting, the sinful, the busted up, the broken. This is who Jesus was. Now, if you understand this, that, that Jesus himself is truth made flesh and love made flesh, then you can hear this text this morning. You will have ears to hear this text this morning because embedded in these words of Jesus about marriage and divorce, there is an uncompromising truth and there is this beautiful, deep compassion. They're both here. And I want to share them with you this morning. So that's how this sermon's going to flow. We're going to talk about the truth that Jesus said through these words, and we're going to talk about the compassion that was underneath these words, which by the way, the compassion is harder to see at first, but it's there. Oh, is it there? We talk about the truth and the compassion and then what it means for all of us. That's our outline this morning. So first, the truth. Now we read these words, they translate pretty equivalently into English, right? There's, there's not a word in this text that we're thinking, I don't know what that actually really means, but here's our best shot in English. No, we're pretty clear on what these words mean. However, there are massive cultural differences from the first century Jewish culture in Jesus' time to the 21st century in, in our culture in our time. There's massive cultural differences, particularly related to marriage and divorce. And that really matters if you want to understand the truth that Jesus was speaking into in this text. By the way, this is the reason why a lot of churches have a hard time with 
with their doctrine or their um, position on marriage and divorce because they try to take these verses and there's other verses in the Bible about this too and they try to apply them directly from the first century to the 21st century. And there's massive cultural differences you have to understand in order to apply them properly. So let's talk about these. In the first century Jewish culture, there was a debate going on in the religious experts of the day. Like th- these were, you know, the, the people that were the, the most knowledgeable of the Old Testament law. And, and here was the debate. What are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? In other words, how can we righteously divorce a woman? Now, notice I said, what are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? How can we righteously divorce a woman? Because women in this culture could not divorce men. It was a one-way street. So you can't change the pronouns up in this text. And Jesus is not saying, you know, uh, if a woman divorces her husband, it doesn't work that way. It only worked one way in this culture. It's funny that I've been, as I've been thinking about this, that, that, you know, the dominant view in Jesus' time as it came to answer this question, what are the legal grounds that a man could divorce a wife? It's funny that, that it was so apart from God's heart Because here's what they were doing in the first century. And these weren't secular people doing this. These were like the experts of the law doing this. They were saying, you can divorce men for almost any reason you want as long as you give her a certificate of divorce. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know, it was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, where did this come from? This is a quote from Deuteronomy 24, verse one. That one verse from the Old Testament mentions a certificate of divorce and it's in the context of a specific situation where God, God would say, if, if, if a man finds indecency in his wife, and that word inde- indecency had been interpreted to mean anything displeasing. In reality, the heart of that word is really about marital unfaithfulness. It was if the woman has broken the covenant with the man through sexual infidelity. That's what that word indecency meant. But these Pharisees and teachers of the law had said, well, it's indecent for her to burn the food. It's indecent. These are literal quotes from from the time of Jesus. It's indecent if if, um, my next door neighbor can hear my wife's voice because she's so loud. And so, oh, she's being indecent. I have permission, according to Moses, to divorce her as long as I give her a certificate of divorce. You see what was going on here? Now, what is this certificate of divorce? It was the freedom paper for the woman because she was considered property of a man. And so he would write her this paper and they've actually found some of these, like you know, not, not ones on paper, but ones that were, that were written in, in pottery and other things that were found in archeological digs, these, you know, these certificates of divorce. And they say things like, you are now free. You are no longer my property. You can go and marry someone else. This was the certificate of divorce. So by the time of Jesus, and guys, if you understand this, it changes the way that you will see these verses. The scribes and Pharisees had made one verse in Deuteronomy into a license for a man to righteously divorce a woman for almost any reason, as long as he jumped through the legal hoops and wrote her a valid certificate. It wasn't really seen as a moral problem in the day of Jesus. Divorce wasn't, as long as you gave a certificate. This is where Truth stepped in with a capital T. This is where the word made flesh stepped in to this cultural moment. And in our passage, he's explicitly saying, you've misinterpreted this whole deal. 
you've gotten Deuteronomy 24.1 wrong. You've heard that it said, you know, if you want to divorce your wife, just give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, Jesus is saying, you've missed the heart of this. You've missed the point of this. Jesus is saying, it's not about a certificate. It's about a covenant. He's saying, it's not about the paperwork. It's about the promise. Now, I did a ton of research on this. I mean, I just read commentary after commentary and like geeked out on all these kinds of things. And, you know, there's, there's, there's consensus around what was happening in the first century. And then I read, after all this academic, you know, struggling through these texts, I went to the message. Um, you know, you laugh. <laughs> The message is the paraphrase of the Bible written by Eugene Peterson, you know? And, you know, sometimes the message gets a bad rap. He's like, well, it's for kids. It's not for kids. Guys, Eugene Peterson was a Bible scholar. Like, he was, a, a, he was an expert in Hebrew. He was an original language. It was a, he was a strong scholar. He was also a pastor. He paraphrased the Bible, a book called The Message, in order to help bridge cultural contexts from the culture it was written to our day. And I want you, this blew me away when, when I read this, I want you to see how Eugene Peterson paraphrases our two verses this morning. He nails it. All right, we'll put it on the screen. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you are automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, after reading all these commentaries and coming to this conclusion, and then I read Eugene Peterson, I thought I just should have started with the message. <laughs> now, do you see how Peterson took correct understanding of first century culture and, and he bridged it to our culture in such a way that we can hear Jesus' intent? And, and guys, I'm telling you, I think he got it exactly right. Now, by the way, why would Jesus say this interesting phrase, if you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress? Because Jesus is assuming remarriage after divorce. In fact, in the culture of that day, if a woman did not marry again, if she could not marry again, she was toast. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but this is terrible, but it's true. Women had no means to provide for themselves apart from being attached to a patriarch in that culture. By the way, this is why the Bible always commands the church to look out for and care for the widows and the orphans. Those are the two segments of society that were not attached to a patriarchal family. And there was no government safety net. There was no social system, no social structure. Jesus saying followers of Jesus care for these people. They matter to God, you see. And that's how this culture is working. So here's what Jesus is saying, guys. This is so important. He's saying, listen, from God's perspective, the man who sent away, unrighteously sent away the woman, is still in covenant with her. And therefore, when she remarries, he is causing her to become an adulterer. Like the, the weight, the guilt is on him, the one that sent her away in, an, in a wrong way. And so the man who divorced her is responsible for making her an adulteress. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. 
Now, to reinforce this, this interpretation of this text, I want to take you to Matthew 19. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles open. Matthew chapter 19. Um, Jesus is going to say many of the exact same words in a different context, but he's going to add some additional information. Here's what's going on in Matthew 19. The Pharisees come to Jesus to try to trap him, to try to trip him up and test him. And they're going to ask him this question that was the big debate of the day. You'll see this. We'll start in verse 3, Matthew chapter 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So, you know, that's the question of the day. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quote, therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter two. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Same words from the Sermon on the Mount. You see what Jesus did here? He first took the Pharisees back to God's original plan, Genesis chapter 2, which is oneness, male, female, both made in God's image, coming together in a marital union to become one flesh. And then he took the Pharisees to their own hearts. And this is just absolutely incredible what Jesus does. He says, it's because of your hardness of heart. In other words, in the context of a busted up and broken creation that affects all of us inside and out, God's law allowed divorce, but it was never God's intention from the beginning. Do you, do you see what Jesus is doing? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Now here's the brilliance of Jesus and I, I wanna take us back to our, our iceberg image and, and I wanna show you, there's the 10% that the Pharisees were concerned with, the legality of divorce. And then there's the 90% that Jesus was concerned with, broken promises from hardened hearts. The Pharisees wanted to make divorce all about what was legal and what was, you know, what looked right on the outside. Jesus made it all about the heart. This is what he's been doing all throughout this section. Now listen to what Jesus is saying here. As we're going to leave that image up for a minute or two. And guys, this is a hard truth to hear because it, it hits me. I think it hits all of us. Jesus is saying underneath every broken relationship, every divorce for certain, is a hardened heart somewhere in the equation. Another way to think about it, and this is a really big deal, there, Jesus is essentially saying there's really no grounds for divorce because it was outside of God's original plan except for hard-heartedness it, which is a, a part of the fallenness of the broken creation. So somewhere in the equation of a broken relationship or broken marriage or divorce, there is hard-heartedness in one or both of the spouses. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes this might look like a spouse putting themselves 
and their desires above the other person. Sometimes it might look like someone unwilling to repent or confess or forgive. Sometimes it looks like someone unwilling to love their enemy. Sometimes it looks like someone allowing lust to become more powerful than their promise. Sometimes it might look like someone unwilling to surrender to the work of God's spirit to bring reconciliation and healing. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but I am saying it's true because it comes from the mouth of the word made flesh. Now, the iceberg is a really great way to think about marriage in our culture too. So I've been talking about Jesus culture, but there's some translation here to our culture. Let, let me show you what I think is above the line and below the line as it relates to marriage in our culture. Marriage at some level is sort of a legal contract. At least that's the dominant view of most people in our culture. Marriage is a legal contract. I'm agreeing to do this. You're agreeing to do this. When you drop your end of the bargain, I'm going to drop my end of the bargain, etc. You know what God's perspective is? What God's intent and design for marriage is that marriage is actually a covenant commitment. Think about the massive difference between a legal contract and a covenant Commitment Here, in essence, is how I might describe it. A legal contract, and you, it all comes down to sort of, you know, my needs and desires and, and just making sure that, that those are met. From God's perspective, guys, and this is why I'm saying Jesus is introducing a whole new way of living, a whole new way of life. I mean, this is crazy, really. But he's saying, you know what? It's not about my needs and desires. You know what it's actually about? God's glory and my growth. In, in Lloyd's passage last week, he talked about how marriage is the visible expression of the spiritual reality of God's covenant with us. Like, so the Bible talks about when a couple gets married, when a Christian couple gets married, they're actually giving a visible expression to the relationship that God has with us, this unbreakable covenant. Guys, that's crazy. Like, that's, that's amazing to think about that my marriage, that your marriage is actually meant to be the visible illustration on this earth of the way that God loves us. I'm not God. My wife's not God. How are we supposed to live this out? Furthermore, the Bible teaches marriage is actually not about your satisfaction. It's about your sanctification. It's not about you being fulfilled. It's about you growing, which is actually better than being fulfilled. You're, you becoming the full human being that God designed you to be, a wholehearted life in Jesus with Jesus at the center of your heart. Marriage will help you get there as much or more than almost anything else on the planet. Is it a legal contract for my needs and my desires? Is it a covenant commitment, God's glory, my growth? Guys, if you don't have the perspective of... of um, uh, a transformed heart, there's no way that you will embrace this. You, you can't. I'm not saying that any like kind of shame or guilt. It's just like, this is a different way of living. It's a different way of thinking about marriage. There's the 10% above the waterline that the world sees and cares about, 90% below the waterline that God sees and cares about. And at first you might look at this and be like, that is so hard. But there is life there. It is so hard, but there is life there. 
Now, we've talked about the truth of the text. Now I want to talk about the compassion underneath the text. At first, there doesn't seem to be a lot of compassion. It just seems like Jesus is saying hard things, and he is. But when you look under the surface, you're going to find a lot of compassion. And, and the way to um, and see the compassion is to remember what was culturally going on at that time. Uh, and I've already shared it with you, so let me just remind you. Let me, two, two points I want to remind you of. First, only men had the power to divorce. Women had no options. Second, if a woman was without a husband, she was outside of anyone's provision and had no way of providing for herself. She had no rights, and there were no societal safety nets. That's just culturally, historically true. So if you take a patriarchal culture like this and you add to it the ability for men to abandon their wives for any reason they want, as long as they sign a piece of paper, then marriage essentially becomes a playground for men to have their needs met at the expense of women. It's ugly to think about it that way, but that is exactly what was going on at the time of Jesus. And so when Jesus took a radically different view of divorce, a much more conservative view of divorce, who was he standing up for in that culture? Say it out loud. Who was Jesus standing up for? Women. Women. It's exactly right. This is a very important point because he was talking to people who were practicing something culturally that was distorted and wrong and painful. And Jesus is saying, no, no, this is not how God designed this to be. And so when you get underneath this text, you actually see that the truth Jesus spoke was also incredibly compassionate. The one who is love made flesh was expressing the heart of God for broken people living in a broken system. And so Jesus' words represent God's vision for marriage. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament say the same thing about God's vision for marriage. That God, God is, is for marriage as two people becoming one flesh throughout their entire lives. And, and, and yet in that context, Jesus is, I think, looking at the, the Pharisees of his day, the men of his day, the, the accepted biblical teaching of the day. And he's saying, men, listen, wives, let me remind you, Genesis chapter two, wives are not property. They are part of you. And the two will become one flesh. It's not about your possession. It's about your oneness with this other human being that you're in covenant with. And so later, Paul picks up this idea from Jesus. And Paul in Ephesians chapter five says, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. You ever thought about why Paul said that? He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. It's because wives are not property. They're, 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 they're united with the husband. There's, there's a, a new entity. There's a one fleshness here. Now, what about this phrase in verse 32? We'll put it back on the screen. It says, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So th th this is sort of, sounds sort of like the escape clause, you know, right? Uh, let's talk about what in the world was Jesus meaning? You know, except on the ground of sexuality, the, then whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Okay, let, let's, let's talk about that. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. And it pops up all throughout the New Testament, and it always is referring to some kind of, of, of sexual sin, but it can mean different types of sexual sins in different contexts. In the context of a marriage, pornea is pointing to adultery on the part of 
a wife. And so in this context, it's marital unfaithfulness. It's the breaking of the marital covenant through adultery. Now think about it. From Jesus' perspective, he's saying adultery is the choice by a spouse because of hardness of heart to break the marital union by creating a new union with someone else. And so if you think about it, Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to divorce for any reason other than that, then when that wife remarries, you're going to be making her an adulteress. But if she's already committed adultery herself, you're not making her the adulterer. Do you see what's going on here in this text? I don't think it's as much an escape clause as it is Jesus is explaining, here's what happens when adultery happens. Here's what happens. Someone is, is, is starting a new bond with someone else. They're breaking this covenant bond and they're joining themselves to another individual. Now, when you combine that with Matthew 19, where Jesus says, you know, marriage was, uh, divorce rather, it was never God's plan, but God's law allowed it because of hardness of heart. You start to get a picture of Jesus holding a tension, a truth, compassion, tension. On the one side, you have God's purposes and God's ideal for marriage. One man, one woman, an unbroken, faithful commitment to one another for their entire lives. Men and women, that is always God's vision for marriage. Always. And on the other side, you have, in the words of Jesus, I believe, an acknowledgement of and even an allowance for the brokenness of a creation that is now marred and marked by sin, by hard-heartedness. And Jesus is holding these two things together in an incredible tension. He says, I'm not going to reduce God's vision for marriage one dot, one iota. And yet, there's great compassion there is great acknowledgement and, and, and even allowance for the brokenness of a creation. So this gets to you and me and our church and how we should view marriage and view divorce in a broken cultural context that we live in too. What should our posture be? It can't be any different than Jesus's. Our position on marriage and divorce is Jesus's position on marriage and divorce. And what does that mean, Rob? He always pointed people to God's purpose and plan for marriage. And at the same time, he simultaneously showed remarkable grace and compassion for people who were wounded by the sin of the world, both the sin outside of them and the sin in them. The way that they were hurt by hard hearts and the way that hard hearts are inside of them. Because Jesus' heart is for the broken, the sinful. Jesus' heart is for the wounded. Jesus says, I've not come for those that are healthy, but for those that are sick. Isn't that all of us? If we have eyes to see. So holding the tension of truth and compassion in a very uncultural-like way, in a very anti-cultural kind of way, counterculture kind of way, is going to be our posture. Because this is what Jesus was doing in his culture. So what would this look like exactly, you know? Uh, here's what I will say. And I hope you really hear me say this because I, I mean this. A fellowship, we are committed to walking alongside marriages in our body that need help 
or that even just maybe you're not needing help, but you just want to be stronger. We are committed to walking alongside marriages at Fellowship, honestly, more than any other church I've ever been around. We have a marriage ministry here at Fellowship. We'll put the contact information up on the screen. There's a website you can go to to learn about it, and there's a contact. I'll mention why I put that email on in just a minute. We have a marriage ministry at Fellowship. Most of you don't even know about it. It is unlike any marriage ministry I've ever seen. Larry Kayser, who was supposed to be here teaching this message, uh, he has been here at Fellowship for a long time. I don't even know how many years, 10, 10 plus years. Larry, in, in his time here at Fellowship, has discipled, he and Anne, his wife, Larry and Anne have discipled couples to become marriage mentors. These are not perfect marriage couples. These are couples, many of whom have been through very deep waters in their marriage, but they're hanging on and they've come through the other side. These are couples that have truth and compassion. We literally have a small army of marriage mentor couples that are here to walk with you in marriage. Like how many? Well, Larry told me just yesterday on the phone, he says, right now, ready to go, we have 40 couples that are ready to walk alongside marriages in our body that may be struggling. And he goes, there's, there's some, some more that are about to be, come online through some additional training that's happening. Guys, that is a massive resource. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you're struggling, even if you're about to fall apart, you think your marriage is done, just would you allow your church to serve you? Will, can, will you just reach out to us and say, I need help? Or if you're not, if the wheels aren't falling off, but you just want some investment in your marriage, we're here for that. Here's what you're going to find from us. You're going to hear that God's plan for marriage is restoration, reconciliation, and it's a lifelong covenant between a husband and a wife. You're going to feel great compassion for the uniqueness and hardships of your situation. Truth, compassion together. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's our prayer. Now, how do you get in contact? Email Annalie. Just send an email, awilliams at fbctn.org, and just say we're interested in marriage mentoring. I also want to let you know that we have a re-engage class that we typically run two times a year in the fall and then starting in January. We hit the pause button during the COVID season, but our hope and prayer and plan is in January. And we're going to get that class rolling again. It is a phenomenal class. It's not just about communication and conflict strategies, although that's a part of it. It's about your heart. And it's about the heart of your spouse and how you all can come together. It's, it's fantastic. I hope you'll check that out when we start announcing it later in the fall. Now, you can take that off the screen. Here's one last thing that I want to say. For, for those of you who have gone through divorce and are here in our body, for those of you that have felt wounded or hurt by us somehow along the way, by something that was, was said insensitively from the stage or, or a comment from someone in our body or maybe just a puzzled look or, or maybe you just people are afraid to ask you about how you are and, and, and ask you about your divorce. And there's all kinds of ways that I know that this can happen. If we have hurt you at Fellowship Bible Church, we have failed to embody the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you to forgive us. I want to ask you to believe that that was us, not him. And I want to invite you to forgive us. I want to ask you if you would do that. And if that means some reconciliation, if you need to come to me or Lloyd or anyone that maybe said a comment or didn't see you in your time of need, we would love to have that conversation. Or it may just be in your own heart, you're able to find some peace just hearing this this morning. But if that is there, and I've talked to some of you where it is,
that is not our heart. Would you forgive us? And then for all of us, single, married, divorced, remarried, wherever you fit in. You're, maybe you're a young person today. Marriage is not even in a, anywhere in your brain right now. I want to invite us and challenge us to be the body of Christ for one another, to model truth and compassion, not one or the other. And so there's some, there's some reflection questions that I, I want just to give us a minute or two to reflect on. We've been doing this each week in this series. We're going to put them up on the screen. And, and this week, what I did was I divided it out in three categories, married, divorced, and unmarried. And for each of those categories, find which one best fits you. There is a question for you to consider and then a prayer for you to pray. And let's just spend this next two minutes right now as the band comes out reflecting on these things. invite you now to take out your communion elements. And if you're watching on, at home, go ahead and grab what you have available to you at home with bread and juice. If you're here with us, you can go ahead and start peeling back that top layer and, and, and don't eat it yet, but take out that little wafer of bread if you have it. As you're doing that, I want to invite you to think about something for just a moment. In all the thousands of years of human culture, of human history, there's one moment in time where truth and compassion intersected more profoundly than any other moment in time. And it was at the cross. Because of the truth of our hard-heartedness, Jesus went to the cross for us. And because of his infinite compassion for our hard hearts, there on that Christ, that cross, he died for us. He went through with it. The bread that you hold in your hands in this moment represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Eat it with gladness of heart. Take the cup, go ahead and peel back that, that next little layer. If you're at home, just take whatever cup you have in your hands. 
You know, Jesus told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. Those were profound words. Covenant means relationship. Jesus was establishing a new relationship. He was establishing something new. And what he was doing at that moment is he was saying, it's no longer about following the law and obeying the law that makes you right with your father in heaven. It's about me. It's about my blood. It's about trusting in my death for you. You know what that means, guys? Whatever bad decisions you've made in the past related to marriage and divorce, whatever hard heart that you've had or even may now still have, there is grace for you at the foot of the cross. Your relationship with God is not about either what's above the waterline or even what's below the waterline. It's about trust. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And then he begins to transform you from the inside out. Remember this. This cup represents the blood of Jesus shed to give us new relationship with God. Let us drink it with gladness of heart.